Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Our guest today is Dr. Jay Watson. Jay Watson is Distinguished Professor of English and Howery Professor of Faulkner Studies at the University of Mississippi, which does have some affiliation with uh, the writer, as you might expect, where he also directs the annual Faulkner Yachnapatafa Conference. He is author-editor of 13 books, most recently a monograph, William Faulkner and the Faces of Modernity, and a co-edited collection, Faulkner and Slavery. Jay, welcome to the Reading McCarthy Podcast. Thanks, Scott. It's really nice to be here. So we've known each other for quite a long time. And although I started in Faulkner and wrote my dissertation on him, it, we really got to know each other through McCarthy. But let's start with Faulkner. And longtime listeners of the podcast have heard his name evoked quite a bit in our discussions of, of Cormac McCarthy. So why don't you tell me your own history of Faulkner and a little bit of what it means to be the Faulkner guy at Ole Miss? Well, my history with Faulkner would have something to do with being uh, a native Southerner. So I, I grew up in Georgia. Uh, I encountered Faulkner during my college education, uh, sort of stumbled onto the sound and the fury as maybe the, the least likely spring break reading in the history of spring break. <laughs> but I was I was pretty mesmerized uh, from the very beginning, but then went off, left the South, uh, went to New England for grad school where I thought I was going to be a very different kind of scholar, but in New England really kind of discovered my Southernness, (laughs) which I hadn't really thought a lot about until everybody around me seemed to want to think about it all the time. James Joyce going to Ireland in a way, or excuse me, going from Ireland to Paris to discover how Irish he really was. To to, to have to answer for Ireland, absolutely, too. Um, But through a kind of long and winding road, that led me to Southern literature in a way just as an opportunity to explore why everyone was so fascinated about the South or by the South. And arriving back at Southern literature meant I was going to arrive back at Faulkner. Right. The, the, the rest was really history after that. And I was, I was lucky enough to land uh, for my first teaching job, my only teaching job in Faulkner's hometown at, and at an institution where I don't have to apologize. I don't have to market uh, my desire to, to teach and, and to work on Faulkner. So it was a really, really serendipitous place uh, to wind up. Being a Faulkner scholar at Ole Miss does come with it, especially as, as the head of the Faulkner Yachnaptafa conference every year. It has some responsibilities that come with it, right? You organize that at an annual event? It does. I, so I'm the director of an annual conference. It's an international conference that's uh, devoted to the study of Faulkner. Um, every year we come at Faulkner from a different topic. I mean, uh, from, a, from a different angle and around a different topic. This year, in fact, we're throwing a couple of other authors into the mix. And so the, the conference is going to focus on the three real giants of Mississippi modernism, Faulkner and Welty and Wright. Um, and that'll be a oh, bit wow. of a uh, you know change of pace for us at the conference, but um, it, it it should be really fun, really stimulating. So there there are responsibilities that go along with the work, but there are an awful lot of resources here um, at uh, at Mississippi, and there's just the opportunity to have a real you know academic social life around Faulkner because other Faulkner scholars and and my Faulkner friends they come to Oxford, uh, they come they right. come here to do research, they come here to work in the archive. They come here uh, for the conferences, so it's it's uh, it's never lonely here with Faulkner. When I wrote my dissertation on him, he was second only behind, I want to say, Shakespeare at that point in the uh, in the mid '90s in the MLA bibliography. There was so much being written on him, and really, his star has not dipped at all in terms of the amount of academic interest in his work. I, I don't know how many biographies have been released on him in the last three or four years. He's probably second only to Hemingway in terms of the number of biographies that are seem to be just eternally gushing forward to, you know, review some other aspect of his life. That, that might be right. I don't, I, I don't know if we're going to get to the point where Ken Burns is going to take on William Faulkner, uh, <laughs> the way he took on Hemingway. But in, in, in that respect, I'm not sure that Faulkner's life you know, strikes your average reader of biography as maybe quite as interesting or as charismatic as Hemingway's. But 
Faulkner certainly has, uh, he's inspired his fair share of biographers and literary critics. And if he's, uh, if he's sharing the stage with more and more writers, you know, as our American literature canon grows, the, the intensity of the interest still, it still seems to be there. Right. Well, because, because ultimately it comes down to the quality of the work. And more than you see in Hemingway, and really I would say more similar to McCarthy, the quality of the work very rarely dips below the median. It, most of what he published is is worthy of interest and worthy of study and worthy of reading. Uh, I won't say all of it. I'm not a big fan of a fable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know Pylon is going through some renovation here lately, but I, I still have to be convinced on, on that one and a couple of others. But it's certainly, you know, you and I were at a conference where there was a question asked of several critics. You were among them. Edwin T. Arnold, who was in the editor of the Faulkner Review and who's really one of the great seminal critics and, and scholars in McCarthy's studies. Absolutely. Uh, and a number of other people, including um, the late Noel Polk, mm-hmm. who if you've read the any of the corrected texts published by Random House and Vintage Faulkner books. Those are all due to Noel Polk's tireless work. It's one of the, one of the giant bibliographical projects of the last 50 years. Absolutely. A really preeminent textual critic. And the question was asked, you know, who's been more important? And I think the the person asking the question was very disappointed when everyone said, well, we're going to land on Faulkner's side on this one. With, with that in mind, that was before, that was after the border trilogy was finished. Mm-hmm. That was before No Country for Old Men right. on the road. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the road itself has kind of spawned a cottage industry of criticism just by itself. So that book's had the kind of impact that, say, a book like As Lay Dying has in terms of creating great interest in the writer. So, so how about your connection to Cormac McCarthy and your interest in him? I know you've taught him for a long time. I have that, and uh, he was another just independent discovery that I made when I was in graduate school. Um, I stumbled on Sutry at the time; it was part of that uh, vintage contemporary writer series in paperback that just had a lot of, I mean, a real variety of interesting American writers. And I think I just saw that book and grabbed it as much because it was in the series as for any other reason, and was just hooked right off the bat. I just, I was just so enamored with the gorgeousness of the prose and just how gripping and compelling uh, that he can make the narrative. And I say that even about a work that's considered one of his most philosophical works and, and, and one yes. of his longest works, but it just, it really grabbed me. And so I wanted to keep exploring and I've, you know, I've read everything by McCarthy. I've had a couple of opportunities here at Mississippi to, um, to teach standalone courses on the McCarthy. So I've done that at the undergraduate level. And I've done it two or three times uh, at the graduate level. And I think that may make me one of the, oh, the few people around who has actually had that, had that opportunity to really immerse students in McCarthy's work and give them the opportunity to kind of, you know, uh, move through it chronologically and think about it comparatively. So uh, if I haven't, I haven't necessarily been as productive on the scholarship side. Um, you know, I've dipped my hand in McCarthy. You've been criticism. a little busy with this other guy that we've, we've heard of. Though. He, he, he will keep you busy. So I've, I've dipped my hand in McCarthy scholarship, but I think I've, I've, I've probably been a more dedicated teacher than I have critic. Well, and, and I think probably one thing we could get most of our colleagues across the country to agree on is that we probably need a few more of the really good scholars and critics to up their teaching game, and we could get some of the teachers to up their scholarship game so that they both really – dovetail together and work well together. And and I do know that program at Ole Miss is one that it does a good job of kind of bringing both, you know, all forces to bear. So why don't you just give us kind of a brief background to who Faulkner is, what his most significant works are, things that, although I come into this podcast kind of thinking and assuming that most people who read McCarthy have a pretty good working knowledge of Faulkner. I don't know that that's always true. I think there are a lot of people who have been put off because he is famously difficult. And for people like you and I, we might think that difficulty is overrated. But on the other hand, I do remember as a 20-year-old picking up Sound and a Fury for the first time and getting knee-deep into Benji's section and thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten into? (music) 
so why don't, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who Faulkner was and again what, which of those works would be things we should really look into well so Faulkner was a native Mississippian born right around the turn of the 19th century 1897 both sides of his family went back several generations in North Mississippi history but Faulkner also when he when he was bitten by the writing bug he kind of had a, a knack for visual art as a younger man and was interested in poetry uh, but as, as he began to move into fiction, he seemed to want to be a modernist and to want to be a bit of a cosmopolitan and was all set to leave Mississippi when a writer he had taken up as a mentor, Sherwood Anderson, author of Winesburg, Ohio, kind of gave him a challenge. And Anderson thought he had a lot of talent, but that he needed to go back to the world that he knew best and to really embrace it imaginatively and write about it and stay there where he could observe it and think about it. And to his everlasting credit, I think it was a very brave thing. Faulkner turned around and he left New Orleans, which is where he was hanging out with Anderson and where he wrote his first novel. And he returned to Mississippi. And for his third novel, which was published under the title of Sartorus, it had been a much bigger novel he wanted to call Flags in the Dust, but the publisher agreed to take it on if he cut it down a little bit. And and starting with that third novel, Faulkner created an imaginary North Mississippi county and county seat that had a lot in common with his native Lafayette County and county seat of Oxford and uh, went back to that county over and over again for the remainder of his career. Um, 14 novels, dozens of short stories all set there. And it became one of the great fictional canvases, one of the richest imaginative landscapes, really, that any American writer or maybe any 20th century writer created. And absolutely, there are a lot of high points in that oeuvre. So you've mentioned The Sound and the Fury. That was his fourth novel um, published in 1929. And it was the first kind of undisputed top drawer masterpiece. It was recognized instantly by other writers as a major literary event and is maybe the, the, the work that began establishing Faulkner's reputation is one of the the most restlessly innovative, experimental among the modernist novelists. And it was followed over the next dozen years by a really amazing amount of of major novels. So As I Lay Dying in 1930, Sanctuary, where Faulkner kind of took the detective novel um, in a more modernist direction in 1931, Light in August in 1932. Absalom, Absalom. I'm skipping over Pylon, which you had a problem or two with. It sounded like but Absalom, Absalom, which I, I think right now the critical consensus might declare to be his most important novel. That was in the mid 30s. Pretty hard to argue with. Mid 30s in 1936. The Hamlet, his great novel that kind of started his saga of the Snopes family. This kind of amoral but incredibly inventive poor white clan that begins to kind of move up into wealth and power in this uh, small town community he created. That was 1940. Um, Go Down Moses, one of his greatest novels of race relations in the South, 1942. So I'm describing about a dozen year period that really has right. a, you know eight or 10 um, important works in it. Yeah, in, including many collections of short stories and amazing short stories published at the same time. And uh, Go Down Moses, of course, there's always the debate, is it Really, a novel as he claimed? Is it a collection of uh, interconnected stories, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the same as simply a random collection of stories? Mm-hmm. Um, and I might come down on that side of that debate a little bit, but of course, uh, the Bear and Pantaloon and Black and the other amazing things published in and Go Down Moses. It, I cannot think of anyone in the Western tradition, with the possible exception of Shakespeare, who rises to that 12 years of output who had a run like that it's it's pretty right, extraordinary. Who had a run like that they might have an overall career you can put up against him they mm-hmm. might have an overall body of work they might have singular works that are as good or, or as great or, or better than some of these but when you look at you know what he does from starting with uh in 1928 through 1942 it's just it's really just unbelievable the the level that he brings to those it's an amazing period that's unparalleled in american literature at least it it really was and two things more uh, to say about it one is that he was also writing for hollywood 
writing um, for the film right. industry, where he was a screenwriter and script doctor for a number of years during that period, and somehow managing to kind of, you know, to to balance the film work, to learn from the film work, to learn from how people in Hollywood told stories and created yes. narratives, and to bring that back to his own work, and vice versa, to bring story ideas out of his own work and think about, you know, how to um, put them up on the screen. So that's another real uh, kind of, you know, uh, extraordinary, but maybe under discussed chapter of this of this same period. Yeah. And the second thing to say about it is we we only have gotten him to mid career. I mean, he went on to write for yeah. 20 more years after that, though the fiction over that period is not quite as well regarded as during that really, really um, intense run. But he uh, didn't publish his last his final novel until the year he died, which was 1962. Is he 64 or 65 when he dies? Uh, he had not yet turned 65. So when you think of the books that, uh, you know, if we're thinking of who are his heirs, who are the people that are spoken of in similar kinds of regard, the two people that come to my mind would be Toni Morrison and Cormac McCarthy. Yes. You think of the works stay published after they turn 65 and it, or at least after they turn 62 or 63, mm -hmm. it, it's, it makes you very sad to consider how young Hemingway is when he kills himself, yes. how young Faulkner is when he dies. And of course, Fitzgerald is dead by 1940. I think he's 44 years old. Mm -hmm. And so of those three great American modernists, very few of them made it into old age. And we, we never got to see the kind of work they may have turned out as older people in the way that we did at Morrison before she passed away. And as we've seen with McCarthy, it's, it's true that that, that that later generation of writers seems to have learned how to take care of their bodies better. <laughs> and, and drink a little less. Uh, uh, that's a big part of the, it. That's the big part that uh, certainly uh, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Hemingway all have in common. It's written about very well in The Thirsty Muse by Tom mm -hmm. Dardis, if you know that book. How is it that, was it Flannery O'Connor who says no one wants to be standing on the tracks when the Dixie Limited comes roaring through? Or She did, or she did like say that? he had created a problem for Southern writers. Just, just his yeah. presence created a very high bar for Southern writers. So she did. She compared him to to a locomotive kind of, you know, charging down the tracks when, you know, the, uh, the ordinary Southern rider is just kind of stalled out there with her little mule cart. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of the Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Right. So with, with stylistics, he's probably the most significant American modernist in terms of when we think of what we think of as modernism's aesthetics, as it shows up in Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and a few other Irish and English writers. So we think of the stream of consciousness. We think of compression of time. We think of playing, you know, with the narrative structure and narrative arcs, focus on detail, use of you know, very complicated prose in, you know, very complicated structures. And so we, we see all that in Faulkner, although, although thematically he's not so concerned with the arc of modernism that comes out of that in the way that say Hemingway and Fitzgerald are concerned with it and certainly T.S. Eliot, but he's concerned with his own notions of the South, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the old South was bad, but there were some good things about it where we losing all of that, replace it with the new South, which is equally bad. Um, how do we uh, how do we get past the original sin, as he always termed it, of slavery, and how would that haunt us and, and continue destroying lives as we try to move forward into the future, dragging the chains of the past like the ghost at the beginning of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol? And I guess we all know that quote from Requiem for a Nun, not one of his better works necessarily, but there's some good parts to it. Um, the past is never dead. It's not even past. That's that's right. And I think, I mean, Faulkner's characters, you know, live out the truth of that with with an intensity and sometimes with a kind of haunted quality. It, it's true. Doesn't seem to have interested the other American modernists um, 
quite as much. So a lot of the real preoccupations and even some of the, you know, I mean, the sites and places as well as themes that really dominate the work of the, of the other canonical modernists, the Elliots ah. and the Fitzgeralds and the Hemingways, those kind of show up as, you know, little cameo moments or an occasional focus of a Faulkner novel. So Faulkner kind of, you know, he had the Great War, but he moved off the Great War really as a focus for his modernism and moved back into Mississippi and back into the South and into Southern history. Um, And there are times when he'll explore, you know, the modernist city, the modernist city has its moments in sanctuary where it takes the form of Memphis or in pylon where um, new Orleans gets to, or a new Orleans like place gets to stand in as a kind of modern metropolis. But those works really come off as more, almost more, almost more experiments. Mm. Uh, and Faulkner is always sooner or later going to come back to the South as the great window onto all of the national mm. uh, sins and crimes and problems. I don't think that Faulkner saw the South as exceptional um, at all. A lot of professional Southerners really like to see the region as a kind of you know exception to the rule of American history. And I think Faulkner very much saw it as the rule. Right the imperialist and the colonialist histories that went on there and the histories of slavery and land theft, um, that in a way, uh, the region never really got past. Those are the nation's histories and we all, we all still have a stake in them. And that's where go down Moses, which takes us from the original taking the land from the, the native American, uh, tribal leader and all the way through the end of, is it whatever the last Ike McCaslin story is where he is, after the bear, he has seeded everything and is just trying to live a life. It's kind of peaceful and failing at it pretty miserably. Right. Delta Autumn. Delta Autumn. Thank you very Mm much. So with, we talked about Faulkner and his thematics and his aesthetic approach. And I think when we first start comparing McCarthy to Faulkner, we see those first four books, particularly elements of Sutri, but also the Orchard Keeper and, and certainly Child of God and Outer Dark. We see the aesthetic burden, uh, the influence of Faulkner on those books, don't you think? Do you, have you s- discovered quite a bit of that? Or I do. I, I, I think McCarthy, you know, had Faulkner's voice in his head in particular, that just Faulkner, Faulkner unlocked some possibilities for the language and the prose. I, and I definitely feel that I, I hear rhythms and cadences from the very opening of The Orchard Keeper that must have come in part from Faulkner. And I don't at all mean to diminish McCarthy and say that I think he had, he had a great ear and not everybody can, you know, I mean, people, people can aspire, you know, to that sort of skill with prose and they can be inspired by it and not everybody can pull it off. Um, McCarthy could take that kind of uh, the biblical cadences that roll through Faulkner and, and to some degree, the, you know, the legacies of Southern oratory, and he could roll those into his fiction. And uh, uh, I think, again, also the real kind of saturation in the interior consciousness that you get at Sutri. I think Faulkner was a major model for that. So I think, I think McCarthy learned a lot of his aesthetic lessons and he found stylistic inspiration that he then learned how to absorb and, you know, uh, uh, put to work to his own purposes. He got a lot of that from Faulkner. I don't know that he would cop to that. As, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> McCarthy, when McCarthy talked about writers, he seemed to have a lot more to say about Melville and maybe even about Beckett than about Faulkner directly. But I think Faulkner is in there. He's, Faulkner is in the McCarthy DNA. He's definitely told people they need to read Faulkner, although he has mostly talked, I think you're right, about Melville, Dostoevsky, Beckett, but it's it's impossible to deny that that Faulkner's in the DNA for sure. And a book that might be interesting to consider with this is a, a kind of a latter day American critical theory work from the I guess from the fifties by Harold Bloom, The Anxiety of Influence, which has the whole notion picking up where T. S. Eliot left off. I guess I guess with um, tradition, individual talent, that uh, a writer is blown away or influenced by some other great writer and really gets into writing to emulate or overcome that writer. And at some level, there's kind of a Hegelian dialectic, which goes on where they become like an apprentice and they work in their style. And then they try to eventually master it. And then they move on into their own territory. Mm -hmm. I sometimes think people apply those notions 
too freely and they do as you carefully did not diminish certain writers to say, Oh, this person's too much like that person. Um, this writer's too much copying that writer, but you know, you, you, it's hard to think we have Morrison writing the way Morrison writes and McCarthy writing the way McCarthy writes. And we could name nine or 10 others. If you don't first have Faulkner writing the way he does. And, you know, you know, Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, none of whom are necessarily stylistically in his shadow, but in other ways might be in his shadow a bit. And stylistically, of course, we do see it with McCarthy and Morrison. And so I think just thinking of it that way, although to my mind, by the time we get into Blood Meridian, he's really moving off and carving new territory that's still, you can see elements of Faulkner still there. And then you see other writers coming in. There's certainly a lot of Melville in Blood Meridian, to be sure. I think the kind of the the visionary quality that Blood Meridian takes on and the more explicit way it sort of invites um, a philosophical engagement with the prose on the page, just from, from page to page, probably comes from Melville more than anywhere else. Um, although you could make the case in a way, maybe, that, you know, I mean, that thematically Blood Meridian is, is, is McCarthy's great Faulkner novel because... <laughs> He sort of, you know, he he goes at American history right. um, in, I think, with with some of the same intensity and depth that Faulkner goes at Southern history, which I'm suggesting is also American history. But, um, you know, as sure. colonialism and slavery were in the U.S. South, you know, that um, imperialism and genocide, uh, native genocide, uh, the Mexican the wars, those, those played the same kind of roles, right, in the, in the 19th century nation, right, on, on southwestern right. ground. So there, for me, Blood Meridian has a lot in common with a novel like Absalom. Absalom, even if, it, even if, you might, even if the voice might not sound quite as similar, say, as the voice of Sutri could sound to the sound of the fury. Right. And and I guess one of the places where maybe people go awry is Faulkner did not mind using the grotesque to get your attention. Mm-hmm. So we have the threat of incest, which doesn't really occur in The Sound and the Fury. The reality of it, possibly, although we don't really know for sure, in Absalom, Absalom, and it shows up in some other places. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely real in Go Down Moses. It's absolutely real in Go Down Moses mm-hmm. and... It's uh, and of course rep- reprehensible in it in its reality there as well. So we see all these these things appearing, and so McCarthy uses them as well. You also see the grotesque reality of violence, so the castration scene in Light in August, mm-hmm. which uh, some of the bloodier, more horrible scenes you see in early McCarthy, and even for that matter, with some of the ultraviolets of Blood Meridian, it, it very much ev- evokes you know, Percy Grimm attacking Joe Christmas's uh, body uh, in the same way. So I, I definitely think we can see all those. What is it they say? History doesn't always mirror repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so there's a lot of rhyming with Faulkner, with McCarthy, as you would expect for someone with similar interests in complex style and with deep philosophical interest and who has something to say in his writing beyond Let's resolve the plot. I, and I would agree that taking that uh, the ability to give yourself permission as a writer to take on the violence of history head on is also something that Faulkner may have helped McCarthy with, you know, just yes. to, the unflinching way that they both go at that, that history was not, you know, not just about power and legitimacy, but that so often that was, you know, that power and legitimacy just came directly yeah. at the barrel of a gun. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting is to think of the ways that Faulkner dolls you into places you don't want to be. So we are plunged into the, you know, the brain and thoughts of Benji Compson, who is a um, someone who's not fully cognitively developed, uh, you know, a 33-year-old man with, I, I guess, a three-year-old's mental capacity or not a whole lot more than that. Then we're, we're plunged into Quentin's suicidal, depressive, anxiety-ridden, past-obsessed, tradition-obsessed, history-obsessed mentality. The the vile nature of Jason Compson Mm -hmm. and and Sound and a Fury, and I laugh a little bit because he's simultaneously one of Faulkner's most evil characters and most entertaining characters, which is just wrong, but there it is. And of course, we have 
many discussions like that in McCarthy, where the people we hate the most are some of the ones we enjoy mm-hmm. considering the most. And I think the judge has had that quality of absolutely you know, of, of fascinating people who find him abhorrent at the same time. Right. But you know what you don't see in Faulkner is the central characters. They're never really absent. Like their their consciousness is always there. They're always part of what's going on. You're at a very close regard. So you and I have talked a long time ago, and I don't know if you recall this, about the people who read the unvanquished incorrectly because they don't really give the last two sections of that book of stories mm-hmm. enough due. And that's where he turns all the Civil War adventure stories about boys, a, a slave boy and his best buddy, the the white slave owner boy, you know, have these little adventures during the Civil War, and then everything gets turned on its head, and it's all subverted and challenged and and messed with, for lack of a better term, at the very end of the story. And of course, he's dealing with the war, but he deals with it through a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old boy's point of view, not by lionizing a general, telling adventure stories about a dashing captain of cavalry, or all the other ways people go wrong when they want to tell stories about the Civil War. And so with McCarthy, what's interesting is there's often a little bit of a remove between you and the character. No no one is identifying with Cullah home. No one is mm-hmm. thinking, oh, poor Cullah, what you're really thinking of, oh, this is horrific. This guy's awful. Wow, this is a really nice line. <laughs> you know? Oh, I can't believe he's doing that. Wow, look how nicely that's put right there. So there's, there is a difference in how he immerses you into character. You know, there are exceptions, of course, that this all changes with the Border Trilogy and mm-hmm. Sutri, too. Of course, you're very much immersed in Sutri, but there is something kind of different. It's, it's interesting how it's distinct from Faulkner as well. I think McCarthy will experiment with a certain flatness of character in ways that, I mean, to, to, to put a flat-ish character actually at the center of the narrative or to flirt with a character like that in the protagonist's role um, or to assign a kind of opacity right. to the really important characters that... Um, uh, that just create that creates a different set of challenges for right. the reader. I think I think as you say, in Faulkner, sometimes the immersiveness is a challenge because yes. you're in a place where you deeply don't want to be. Yes, and sometimes you are you know you are you are very close and down very deep with characters who also don't want to be in that place. Right, right, and the everything from the awkwardness to the unbearableness of that kind of position that. The, 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 clo- the proximity, the immersiveness creates challenges for readers. I think the way that McCarthy's fiction resists that creates a different set of challenges yes. um, that I'm sure uh, um, are answering to his purposes in their own way. But it does make it nice. It, it makes it refreshing, you know, when late in his career, he gets to Ed Tom Bell, right? And right. You know, finally gets to a character that he will allow to narrate in the first person. Um, so that we can kind of, you know, we can go in there and get inside a voice and a consciousness in ways that we might be more used to from Faulkner, but we're certainly not used to from McCarthy. No, and it, and it's only in a few sections of No Country for Old Men, and yet That's people right. made so much hay out of it, thinking, "Oh, this must be the voice of of McCarthy himself." And it, again, well, it, Jason Compson was not the voice of Faulkner. Darrell mm-hmm. Bundren was not the voice of Faulkner. We, we need to remember there's a wall there, but it's because I think it was so rare for McCarthy. Right. Other than a little bit of free and direct discourse, we have a few fragmentary chapter sections in Child of God, which mm-hmm. is reminiscent of like the townspeople and Rose for Emily or all the different chapters and Azalea dying. Mm-hmm. And then you're right. It's a big jump all the way ahead to Ed Tom Bell and No Country for Old Men. Other than that, it's all third person. And it's up and down to limited, omniscient, and fully omniscient perspective ladder, but there we go. I, I would agree with you, too, that that may tell us more about readers than it, act, than it ultimately tells us about the author. I mean, yes. so often as readers, we're looking for that character that we can identify as the spokesperson or as the, you know, the, the, the character who reflects the author's outlook or personality and so first person voices are places we gravitate to right if we're looking for a kind of window back onto the author or even you know those kind of closely focalized um or uh, you know characters who are this who are the subject of free and direct discourse as you said um, as such returns out to be yes. such re- so 
I think Sutri has been the object of as much speculation about, you know, right. how much McCarthy is in there. Yes. Um, in McCarthy's, you know, earlier stages, as Ed Tom Bell has been the subject of speculation about this older McCarthy. Does McCarthy really think that? Is, is right. he really as conservative as Ed Tom sounds? But when, when a writer only rarely writes in the first person voice, I think that kind of represents a temptation to us as readers to yes. you know, maybe, maybe jump to conclusions about whose voice that really is. And, you know, you can't think of any writer who's been more resistant to being in the public eye than McCarthy. I still suspect his editor or his agent one physically wrestled him onto the, into the deal with Oprah and we're standing right outside the room with tasers or arms to, to make him go through that. And the body language in those interviews where he's mm-hmm. slinks lower and lower in the chair and she looks more and more regal, you know, queen of the media universe is very interesting for people who study those kinds of things. Uh, it was Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, these other people we've mentioned really like all writers, they seek as much attention as they can because attention equals sales and you, you can only make a living at it if you can sell books. I think there were ways in which Faulkner made a pretty awkward literary celebrity and public intellectual. Uh, when, when you're talking about McCarthy, they're cringing in the chair with Oprah. I think, I think Faulkner had some <laughs> cringeworthy moments of his own, you know, experimenting with the role of yeah. the author as a public figure. And in, in some ways, the worst thing that could have happened to him was winning yeah. a Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, for 1949, because that he spent the whole decade of the 50s trying to sort of dodge the spotlight right. and failing and failing. So he gives up and goes to Virginia and says, OK, you got me. Let's go fox hunting. Mm-hmm. Hemingway, similarly, although he wanted everyone to pay attention to his writing, hated having the camera on him, hated giving actual verbal interviews and both of them had the problem of dealing with stress by drinking heavily and so there we know with Faulkner there are a few drunken rambling interviews that he would do anything to take back and said some things that have haunted him ever since with McCarthy of course we have not had those problems he seems to have been a lot more disciplined about you know choosing his spots and uh for feature articles for profiles uh for interviews he has rationed himself out a lot more sparingly that probably means that the critics and scholars are going to pour over every little word of those rare yeah, statements. Um, but, you know, you, I think you've got you've got to tip your cap to it. Absolutely. It's not hard to look at the examples of writers who get caught up in the, the, the mechanism of fame, I believe, is one of the books that came out about Hemingway. And in our context today, we might think of the Disney Channel kids who get caught up in these and just torn to pieces by trying to be rich and famous and important. And then the spokespeople, their generation is kids of modest talent thrust into national spotlights. And so is it any wonder Hemingway Hemingway and Fitzgerald were a little more precocious too, which is to say they really were kind of the wonderkins and, you know, like um, the talented kids and, you know, for Faulkner and McCarthy, they got started a little later. Right. Um, and it was also a longer road to real fame and wider readerships. And that, you know, that that could have been a good thing. Um, that could have been a career prolonging thing. Uh, it, I, I think you're probably right, because the only book of Fa- the the old saying is, although I've heard this challenged, that the only book of Faulkner's is still in print when he wins the Nobel Prize is Sanctuary is, you know, kind of Southern. And what I've heard is, well, it's the only one still in print in hardback. There's paperbacks floating around. So that's been a little bit overreported, but that he still had not been given. He, it was a cult hit, you know, everyone who was a serious reader and serious critic loved Faulkner and paid attention to him, but he just wasn't, didn't have big sales, which is the main reason he had to go to Hollywood to make the extra money. Whereas Hemingway said, the way you do of Hollywood is you, you drive to California, stop at fence, throw book over, they throw money over, drive home. And that probably did help him in some ways. As we go on and we think about other themes 
and tropes, can you think of anything we haven't really talked about with Faulkner uh, showing up in McCarthy in certain ways? Uh, you know, there's so much about family in Faulkner, and it's not always there in McCarthy in every way. So there is this stuff with fathers and sons, of course, it shows up a lot. And, and I think that's, uh, I mean, again, this is where the criticism is recognized that Sutri is the McCarthy novel that is really engaging um, with that side of the Faulkner legacy, or, you know, maybe just maybe engaging with those elements of the McCarthy legacy, the McCarthy family legacy that just kind of pulls him into right. uh, Faulkner territory. But that's, that's the novel that really seems to take on family, the kind of, you know, generational struggles, you know, the sense of decline from generation to generation that really haunted the Faulkner family. Yes. Certainly haunts Sutri. Um, and I, I've written about this and others have written about this. There's, there's some Quentin Thompson, who's the, the haunted young man who figures in the sound of the fury and Absalom, Absalom. There's some Quentin Thompson in, um, in Sutri. For sure. The man as n- not the character as well as the novel. So, you know, that's a, that is a Faulkner theme that McCarthy, I think, resists in a great deal of his writing, but certainly explores in Sutri. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things, of course, that is interesting about Faulkner, I remember hearing a Boston college, possibly Boston University professor speak years ago about how much Faulkner hated the South. And and I think, well, that's why he never left it for long. And he always did everything he could to get back to it. And he never really spent much of his life away from the South it was because he hated it. And I really feel like anyone who wants to know how Faulkner felt about the South needs to read the last page of Absalom, Absalom. You know, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. He panted into the cold iron, New England dark. And, you know, well, he hates it and he doesn't hate it. You know, mm-hmm. there's something going on there. And that's what it means to be young and intellectual and smart and, and sensitive in the South of, of that point, 36 and at other times. And, but unlike Faulkner, who, other than that brief time living in Virginia and his forays in the, in the Hollywood, you know, Faulkner always lived in the mm-hmm. South, lived in Mississippi for the most part. McCarthy uh, escapes. He makes his way into Texas and from Texas to New Mexico. Now, some people from other parts of the country probably think of Texas as the South. I think it is Southern, but I think Texas is its own thing unto itself. Another South. That's right. Uh, it's another, an alternate South. It's not, in the way that Georgia and Alabama and South Carolina, Mississippi have so much in common for all the various, you know, unique qualities, Texas is in itself a particularly unique space and deals with many other kind of paradigms and, and considerations. And then from there, of course, in New Mexico and now into the world of particle physics and complexity theory and all that. Do you think that enlivened his career and allowed him to even further separate himself from Faulkner and, and other progenitors that literal physical move away from the familiar? I think if there had been anything like an anxiety of Faulknerian influence for McCarthy, that the move would have helped. Um, I don't want to overread that onto the move. I mean, he might, it, it, it might've been East Tennessee that he was, you know, done with as much as right. William Faulkner. Yeah, or, I, don't, I don't mean to imply, yeah, I don't mean he to imply he moved because of, you know, he didn't want to be seen as a Southern mm-hmm. writer anymore. I think he moved because he wanted to move to a new But I place, think readers, but... readers can feel the difference between the Tennessee material right. um, and the Southwest material. They could, you, you've alluded to a change of style earlier, and I think it, it is there. It's there in the look of the prose on the page. It's there in the way that it, yes. it, that it's the, it, the way that it, um, it, it scans and parses if you read it aloud. And, you know, just the, the, the presence of Mexico on that southern landscape also really, really changes things uh, for that border fiction. Just the, t- I mean, taking up the whole theme and, you know, the great sort of national and transnational histories of that border area, that really kindles something, you know, new and exciting for McCarthy. So, yes. so thematically, he really strikes out in new directions and he finds new subjects. Um, as well. So I, I certainly think that had a real, that had a re-energizing influence on his body of work. I think that we're probably much more fortunate, much better off to have the novels that he went on to write than we might be to have had five or six more Appalachian novels or, you know, novels, For novels sure. sit in the Eastern seaboard or the traditional deep South. Um, so 
I'm very grateful that he that he moved. I can't claim to really understand <laughs> the motive, all, you know, the full motives behind it. Although he did kind of he dramatized that impulse to leave. Yes, uh, with the end of Sutri and then with the beginning yep. of Blood Meridian, where the kid also yep. sort of picks up and lights out of Tennessee for the Southwest. So I think it was either something that in a very, you know, kind of mischievous way, he's inviting his readers to think about through this kind of meta narrative uh, at that little point in his career, or it was something that really meant enough to, you know, to him and came from deep down enough in his being that he wanted to give it some, you know, uh, textual airtime. Hmm. Uh, I think that's excellent points. So for the reader of McCarthy, what would you, which Faulkner novel would you recommend first to a reader of McCarthy? Someone, uh, let's say they haven't read any Faulkner, but they've read, you know, a good bit of McCarthy. Which Faulkner novel would you recommend first? If that question is about um, a reader making connections, so that it matters that this is a McCarthy reader who has a certain stake in exploring Faulkner and McCarthy has something to do with that, I think I might send that reader to The Sound and the Fury. Um, okay. as a, I think as a really good illustration of what McCarthy is avoiding, is working around for a lot of his career, but then is engaging um, in a novel like Sutri. Now, that's also a tall order because that's a very, very right. formally ambitious and, and challenging novel. So they're really, you know, Scott, there are a lot of ways into this question. Right. I think, you know, for a McCarthy. We have a tradition of no one ever tell me their favorite book with one book or right. giving me one choice. So you're welcome to right. add two or three others here. Right. Well, I, and I'm also not talking about my favorites. I'm trying to think about, you know, a reader getting. Well, I'm going to ask you that in a second. A reader getting started with Faulkner and it actually being a McCarthy reader. So if this is a McCarthy reader who is bowled over by the achievement of Blood Meridian, I would say go to Absalom, Absalom. Okay. You know, I mean, in other words, if Blood Meridian shows you kind of like how high the bar is for McCarthy, Absalom will show you how high the bar can be um, for Faulkner, Faulkner. Uh, as can Sound of the Fury. So that's a kind of approach to your question where I'm really I'm starting with the best. If it's about getting your feet wet with Faulkner there, I think, you know, that's a different sort of question. And there are other you know, there are other ways into it. Um, for a lot of people who just walk up and McCarthy or no McCarthy, they just ask me where to start with Faulkner. I might suggest that you grab the collected short stories oh, yeah. and dip around in there because one of, you know, one of Faulkner's most lasting achievements is to have created this entire fictional world in ways that go beyond the ability of any one work yes. to really to capture. And if you, if you dip around in the collected short stories, that's a, almost four dozen stories it gives you just a sense of the range of Faulkner's interests and the population of Yachnipatafa County and the different sorts of stories that are available to him from different parts of the landscape and different parts of the, the social spectrum. So that, and, you know, that approach has the virtue of all oh, those stories are only 20, 25 pages a piece. Right. If it's, if it's not really speaking to you, you can always just pack up and move on at not great cost. You haven't had to invest three or 400 pages in deciding that, you know, that something is just might not be for you. So that's, an, that's another way into the question. And you've invited me to be long-winded without knowing it. So I'm going to be long-winded. If you, if you want to start with one of the real masterpieces that, however, might not be as formally daunting as novels like Absalom, Absalom, and The Sound and the Fury, I think Leiden August is a great yes, place to start. Absolutely, for sure. It's an amazing social canvas, and it's one of the greatest, most comprehensive novels of Jim Crow, of the Jim Crow period in, in Southern history. It's a very, it would be a very powerful place to start, and it's more readable than most yes. of his greatest novels. And it really captures every. So, Sound and the Fury doesn't really tackle race the way much Faulkner does and Absalom Absalom, which does, uh, doesn't necessarily do all the other things sound and fury does, but light in August to me really ties it all together. And, you know, you bring up something, we're talking about these other great Southern writers and Mississippi writers. So Richard Wright, William Faulkner, Eudora Welty, and then we move over to Georgia and we hit Flannery O'Connor. Then we bring in our modernist writers, Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, one thing they all have in common is an extraordinary collection of short stories they left behind. 
Much mm-hmm. of Welty's best writing, I, I would argue her best writing is in her short fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people would agree that with the exception of maybe two or three novels, most of all of Hemingway's best writing is in the short fiction. Um, Faulkner's short writing is extraordinary. Although, and although Fitzgerald's got a lot of stuff, he's just churned out Saturday Night Post and to pay the bills. He wrote some amazing gems at the same Absolutely. time. And then the market crashes. Television killed the radio star and television also killed the, the magazine and pulp fiction markets and network TV shows, uh, you know, following on the hills of radio t- shows more or less destroyed the, the short story market in America. So that when you and I were graduate students and college students, you went to the small little bookstore in the mall. Those were the big box stores and for all the great little small cool stores uh, were around and you had a shelf of those vintage contemporaries you were talking about mm-hmm. and you knew they were going to be good because they're so well curated. And I want to say that was one of the primary architects of that was Gary Fiskett, John, the editor who would later become one of, of Cormac McCarthy's main editors mm-hmm. at Random House. But all those writers or many of them broke into print through their collection of short stories first and then later moved on to other things. And a couple of the giant writers in that time period, like Raymond Carver and Bobby Ann Mason, almost wrote only short stories. And of course, Carver never wrote a novel. And now we jump to now. We jump, well, even Toni Morrison, Cora McCarthy, who wrote that same generation, since there was no real market, no paying market in short fiction, there are no short stories by them. There's one significant story by Morrison that's mm-hmm. in the Norton Anthology, mm-hmm. uh, Recitative. Uh, McCarthy has a couple he wrote as a college student, but didn't really officially get published too much later because everything was about writing the novels. And to me, that's been a, a real loss to American literature that it's only the writers who never quite hit who you still get to find all the great short stories by, it seems, that the story market. So we still get Alice Munro, who's Canadian, um, Amy Hempel, a few other kind of great short story writers, but we don't really have that ongoing even as they're turning out novels, there are all these amazing short stories and story collections coming out on the side as well. Yeah, the, just the literary marketplace just changed. I mean, in in Fitzgerald's heyday and, and you know, Faulkner's as well. Faulkner got a couple of novels out and then he started trying to publish in the Saturday Evening Post. And it was really hard for him, but he eventually got there. But, you know, like Fitzgerald, he could make more money from publishing one story in the Saturday Evening Post than he could from publishing a novel. And so that had just ceased to be true, I think, by about the 50s or the 60s um, when short stories started. I mean, there was the New Yorker. There were a few right. outlets where you could publish you could you could publish excellent short fiction in an American magazine. But, you know, the most important short fiction was kind of going to live in little reviews right. and academic journals, so, you know, creative writing journals. And that that really good paying market for short fiction had just vanished and it was novels that became the cash cows. And so, you know, we have a creative writing program here and my friends in the creative writing program who write fiction say that none of their editors or agents want a volume of short stories. It's like, it's, it's poison. Well, yeah. Tom Franklin's one of those writers Mm -hmm. and he hit with that great collection poachers with that wonderful uh, novella, the uh, titled novella, which put him on the literary scene and it's been all books. It's all been all novels since then. It had, it has been, and his publisher has told him they just don't, you know, yep. they're just uh, uh, short story collections are so hard to market. So, you know, kind of like that route is closed. You, there's not a real healthy market for book length collections of stories, right. and then there's not a super healthy market for publishing solo stories in large circulation magazines because no. they're actually they're fewer they're just fewer large circulation I, magazines than they used to. Yeah, be. I think I think the only large circulation slick that still publishes fiction regularly and not as regularly as it used to as the New Yorker. And inevitably the New Yorker's interest pretty always mirrors where the fiction editor is. And if it's not your interest, you're going to be a little bit disappointed in, in what they're doing. It's not. It, no, that's right. That, that series of editors have been really important American tastemakers uh, for short fiction just now for just going on for almost a hundred years. Right.
one of the things I always ask everyone who came on here, and I guess I'll broaden this question. I always ask everyone, Jay, what's your favorite McCarthy novel? And I also want to ask you, what's your favorite Faulkner novel? And I'm going to make a stab at what I think it is between two novels. I'm going to come down on two. I think it is. I think it's either Absalom, Absalom or Light in August. Is your one of those or both of those are your favorite Faulkner novels? I think I think the one that is the closest to a favorite Faulkner novel for me is Light in August. It does change, honestly. Kind of the stock market goes up and down you know, with those novels, and uh, sometimes you hit a little bit of diminishing returns with them, and then sometimes they're just absolutely reborn for you. But light, but I think Light in August. Um, if we're not asking. Um, about what I think the best is, but just what my personal favorite is. I think that's probably the one. And I, I think I'm right there with you. And those are the same same two. That And there's a couple others that kind of weave their way in. And I do have affection for some of the lesser loved novels as well. And I guess we all do. And how about Cormac McCarthy? Can you can you land on one? Do you need to work in two or three? Or what's your favorite Cormac so McCarthy novel? Where I'm lucky with McCarthy is that my favorite is the one I think is the best, and it is Blood Meridian. Wow. And I, I think by some measure, that is my, I'm just in awe of the novel, and it's a complete, just wonderful, pleasurable, awe-inspiring experience every time I go back yes. to it. So that's, that's the one, although if you want any kind of a caveat there, I can hedge a little bit, since everybody else hedges, and I can say... I, I could probably make a case that the greatest single piece of writing that McCarthy did, at least for me, is um, section one of The Crossing. Ah, yeah. It's, Billy, it's Billy's story with the wolf, yeah, that's, which I think is, that, that's, that's my favorite single little stretch of McCarthy writing anywhere. Best hundred pages, I think. He ever I'm really, the only word for it is offended that there are no excerpts of McCarthy showing up in literary anthologies. And when you get to the 1990s and later in the Norton and the Heath anthologies to name a couple. It's pretty sparse and pretty tepid stuff. There's some good writers in there. I don't mean to disparage them. And I know that they've run out of space and it's all this thin paper and all these words and the anthologies already cost $8,000, whatever it is they're charging for them these days. But I've always felt you could excerpt that section of the crossing. It's a standalone story and, and promote it in these anthologies to give McCarthy his due in the Academy because those anthologies and do affect their place in the Canon probably more than they should. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, a writer's star rises and falls based on, on where they are. I mean, it certainly has hurt Hemingway that for a long time, his family would not authorize more than one story in any Mm -hmm. anthology. Um, Cause I guess they thought all the sophomore literature teachers were going to run out and say, you have to buy these three novels in addition to your anthology. Well, a lot of people teach at schools where they're not allowed to add additional texts. And if you're going to add a novel, it might end up being the great Gatsby or their eyes are watching God or something. So um, now that that stuff's coming into public domain, that'll help Hemingway a bit. But Mm -hmm. with McCarthy, I've always wanted to see that, that opening section of the crossing published in that way. And I do think I agree with you. That's very remarkable as well. I just don't know how you write any better than that. No, you, I mean, I don't care who I don't care who you are. I don't know how you could write any better than that. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we're talking about the Bloom's idea of the anxiety of influence. It is interesting how many writers we can point to who are very clearly, and I won't name them by name, um, uh, but they're very clearly channeling Cormac McCarthy. They're very clearly trying to, even to the point of leaving out quotation marks and things like that. So we see that. Melville to Faulkner to McCarthy to the new writer or someone from the nineties or two thousands here. So it's interesting how it, it keeps just the chain keeps going, adding a link here and adding a link there. Well, it, it, you know, it bears out McCarthy's observation that, you know, I mean, the, the ugly truth of literature, right. Is that books are made out of other books. books. Are made out of other books. Faulkner said the same thing, yeah. right? That the writer is a thief. He just goes around stealing and he's absolutely amoral about it and he'll steal from anybody. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not an unhealthy thing that these new folks are stealing from the best. And you that's why we always tell people who want to become writers, the one thing you have to do is a as if you want to be a writer of fiction is you have to read. Uh, read everything, read all the time, uh, read it all and keep reading. Absolutely. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Jay Watson. Jay is Distinguished Professor of English and Howard Professor of Faulkner Studies at University of Mississippi, where he also directs the annual Faulkner and Yachtnot Taffa Conference. 
He is author and editor of 13 books, including have recently authored William Faulkner in the Faces of Modernity and a co-edited collection, Faulkner and Slavery. Thanks again, Jay, for coming on. Oh, thanks so much, Scott. It was a real pleasure being here. And thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, which, as I always point out, is a downright dirty shame. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Thoroughly, quite indeed modern, find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy similar other ones such as Great American Novel. Thank you for listening.